it went from writing a book for my grandchildren and it manifested itself into the uh, museum as it's known today. The museum um, is known all over the country. We're listed on the National Park Service Underground Railroad Network to Freedom site in all of their literature. And those designations are recognized around the world. To say Lisa Peyton Jones is a big contributor to Washington and its surrounding areas in eastern North Carolina is a massive understatement. She is a crucial part of that community and serves as executive director of the Washington Waterfront Underground Railroad Museum. Now, Ms. Jones is an authority on the area's history and its place in the National Underground Railroad movement before and during the Civil War. She's also a children's book author, and in this episode of NC Travel Chat, We'll learn about her story, but also how this amazing and unique museum came to be. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Carl Hedinger. Let's start NC Travel Chat with Lisa Peyton-Jones of Washington. My name is Lisa Peyton-Jones, and I am the founder and executive director of the Washington Waterfront Underground Railroad Museum. And how the museum came into existence I'm going to give you the reader's condensed version of all of this. (laughs) I was writing a book for my grandchildren because I wanted them to know um, the ancestry of our family. And um, I knew that my mother's family had uh, been free. But I found that my grandfather's mother, I found her on a plantation in Bath, North Carolina, which is about... um, about 20 miles from where I live here in Washington. Now, the Washington Historical Society at this time only listed about six plantations in the greater Washington area. And trying to find how my great, great, I guess I should say this about three times, great, great, great grandmother came to end up on a, a plantation in Bath. I wanted to see how many other plantations I could find in the greater Washington area. So in about a course of three months, I had found about um, 90 plantations that I had never seen listed or heard about. And in in about three months, I found 147. And in, in looking at all the plantations and the history around it in the greater Washington area, I came across history they had never been talked about. Now, I'm Washington, born, raised, educated, and I came across information uh, re- regarding um, the Underground Railroad, uh, enslaved people's history, and history of African Americans here in Washington that had never been talked about. So I started doing a walking history tour um, in downtown Washington, the historic waterfront. And I started talking about the information of the Underground Railroad that I shared. I developed a Facebook page to talk about it. Uh, The Facebook page was, I'm from Washington, North Carolina, and nobody told me this. The reason I named it that when I shared this information with people, they would go, well, I'm from Washington, North Carolina, nobody ever told me this. And I developed quite a following a steward from the National Park Service got wind of the Facebook page and they said if I could give them the documentation that the Washington waterfront was used as a underground railroad site indicating that there were um, escape attempts from the Washington waterfront, they would designate the Pamlico River 
about three miles of it uh, right here on the Washington waterfront as an underground railroad network to Freedom Site. So we got the designation in 2014 after sending copious amounts of information, documents, old slave ads to the National Park Service. Now, there are a lot of people who tour National Park Service underground railroad sites. I mean, there are people that come from other countries. So people started coming here to Washington, but we didn't have a facility. We didn't have anything that we could um, host our documents in. So we went to the city of Washington, asked them, could we use an old caboose that sat there um, empty at the corner of Gladden and Main Street that sat there empty for many years? We asked them, could we use it to house an underground railroad museum um, exhibit? And so that's kind of how we ended up with the Underground Railroad Museum here in Washington. We had the documents. We had all kinds of paperwork. We had enslaved people, ads, thousands of them, but we had nowhere to put them until we got that train caboose. So that's how we ended up with the Washington Waterfront Underground Railroad Museum. It went from uh, writing a book for my grandchildren and it manifested itself into the uh, museum as it's known today. The museum um, is known all over the country. We're listed on the National Park Service Underground Railroad Network to Freedom site in all of their literature. And those designations are recognized around the world. Wow. So in a nutshell, that's how we came to, you know, to um, have the Washington Waterfront Underground Railroad Museum. That is an amazing origin story. I have to say that. Do you work together with any other of the uh, the Underground Railroad Network? Uh, sites like uh isn't there one in Edenton? Yes, I think it that is, if I'm not mistaken, the whole plantation. Uh we kind of partner with uh one of our sister plantation sites on um, Somerset Plantation in I believe it's um I want to say Windsor. Oh my goodness, I should know this by heart. But <laughs> it's in Bertie County. So we um, partner with them in sharing information. Uh, we've done some work with them in terms of um, the events that they host. And we can also refer people that come to us to go to them because that way they have an actual plantation site. So it enhances what we share at the Washington Waterfront Underground Railroad Museum. That's great to hear there's some cooperation and collaboration going on. They do fantastic work over there. Um, it's an experience that you really have to see. Um, often when I go to Somerset, um, the plantation is huge. It's enormous. Hmm. And I say to myself, um, how would I have ever come up with a plan to even imagine escaping um, from this plantation? Which leads me to talk about what the Underground Railroad was. Uh, the Underground Railroad was just a network of people helping people, all kinds of people, white, black, free blacks, Native Americans, anyone with a strong moral compass. It was not right to enslave people. That is generally what the Underground Railroad was. And and in the Washington area, you said you uncovered how many plantations was it? Right now on my files, I have 143. 
The largest plantation is Elmwood Plantation, which is about four blocks from the Underground Railroad Museum. Um, Now, the land around it doesn't exist, but the plantation house that was built in 1820, it sits there today. It's a beautiful building, beautiful house. And so do you take all of those stories? I mean, you're in a caboose. You're working, I would I say, with limited space, possibly. Um, do you, ha- I guess you have the most powerful stories presented there. Um, what's the layout of the museum itself? In the museum, um, when you first come in, we call that our documentation room. Um, there you'll find one of our most prized possessions, and that's our certification from the National Park Service itself. But in that room, we have documents. Uh, We have people, pictures of um, people who were instrumental in the Underground Railroad. Dr. William Steele, he is known as the founder of the Underground Railroad, as well as um, other people who were were entwined with the Underground Railroad uh, right here in eastern North Carolina, uh, the Greensboro area, which had strong Quaker influences in terms of um, abolitionist activity. And so we have um, pictures of Mr. Levi Coffin, um, his brother's bestial Coffin, um, people who were uh, very helpful in terms of helping people get from North Carolina to their routes north. Hmm. Um, We have all kinds of documentation. We have old slave ads from um, hundreds of newspapers that we are able to document actual escapes from the river. We have books that we use in terms of talking about the Underground Railroad. Um, I, for myself, I go into university libraries all over the country. Let's just say if I'm in Las Vegas, the first thing I'm going to do is find a university library because you'd be amazed what you can find about underground railroad activity here in Washington and Eastern Carolina in all parts of the country. Uh, When people migrated toward the North and the West, they took their histories, they took their documents, they took their Bibles with them. So I can go to Colorado and interestingly enough, find out um, movement from from Eastern Carolina um, to Colorado. So we we document those uh, migrations. So in that, when you first come in, you get a strong sense of how we document what we tell you. Um, the Underground Railroad people did not leave. Um, they did not leave maps. They did not leave detailed instructions about how to do things. So I'm always hearing information about oral accounts. And when it comes to the Underground Railroad, you get a lot of oral accounts. But what I try to do with the oral accounts is match them with strong um, primary sources, secondary sources, tertiary, uh, third level um, sources, so that when we tell you something, we're able to put some kind of um, research behind it. So that's what you get when you first come in. And then the second part of the museum is another room. We call that our presentation room. In the presentation room, we help you to understand how clothing, food, songs, nursery rhymes, um, all kind of what we call coded items. For example, we'll talk to you about um, 
how sunflowers played a role in um, giving a message, whether it's a good day to try to board a ship at the Washington waterfront. Uh, most of those ships, I, I would say 95% of those ships, they were manned by what we call blackjacks. Uh, many of them were free black men, but a lot of them were enslaved black men. And blackjacks would give you, um, through a network of abolitionist activity, um, codes that you could use in terms of being able to get on a ship. Now, Washington had two slave markets, which were right off of the waterfront. So people were always in Washington either to uh, buy slaves or look for runaways. Many of the slave ads that we have posted, they'll say things like they're trying to get to Washington to board a ship. So you needed coded activity to be able to tell you, is, a, is it a good day to even be seen on the waterfront? So Blackjacks working with abolitionists and enslaved people, they'd come up with what would look like innocent looking items to everyone else. But if you knew what they meant, um, it would give you a sense of uh, it's a dangerous time to be on the waterfront. Um, it's a better day to be on the waterfront. So in the presentation room, you'll see things like sunflowers. A sunflower was used to indicate not a good day to be on the waterfront. So if someone had a couple of sunflowers, if you saw them dropped somewhere, if you knew what that meant, you knew it's not a good day to try to do anything on the Washington waterfront because there were people in town looking for runaways. If you saw black-eyed peas dropped on the waterfront, it indicated the same thing as a sunflower. There are just too many eyes watching. And so in that room, you see all kinds of um, um, aids that would have been used to decipher a code. A turnip deposited somewhere could mean that there are people who has turned up and they will help you. Now, again, these codes are uh, codes that have been passed down through generations. And one of the things we try to do with the um, coded items that we hear about, Dr. Judith Wellman developed a scale, I think it's in Oswego, New York. But anyway, she developed um, a scale in which you can talk about Underground Railroad history. And she, she um, puts it on a scale from one to 10. A one meaning it just plain did not happen. Um, it's a great story, but it did not happen. A 10 is strong primary, secondary um, documentation. So when we talk about the codes that we hear, used here in Washington, we find them on a scale of five to six, meaning it's credible. Hmm. And so we um, share the codes. Uh, we talk about how nursery rhymes could have been used. Old Mother Hubbard went to the cupboard. Um, we talk about how that was used in Ashtabula, Ohio, as a code message to let people know what to do. So in that room, you see all kinds of information that would have been conveyed by a freedom seeker. We tell you the length of time it could have been used. We often hear about quilts. Um, there's a strong controversy about quilts. Some people say um, the quilt coded system of information is not true. However, we found it is true based on documentation that we have um, from uh, West Des De Moines, Iowa. And we knew that there was an underground railroad um, activity out there that did use quilts. Um, here in Washington, we find we did not use quilts. 
um, in that way. First of all, you did not want people to know you were enslaved. I'm, I'm sorry, you were helping enslaved people. So you wouldn't hang a quilt out. There was harsh penalties about hanging um, any kind of information anywhere that would have um, led people to believe that you were helping runaways. So here in Washington, we found that quilts were not used. And even if they were, um, it's not the romantic version of a quilt being hung out for days at the time. At the very most, it would have been hung out for an hour. Because again, you would not want people to know that you were helping runaways. So a lot of the codes, um, uh, they're um, secretive and they are only... um, privy to people who actually knew what they meant. A code, the sunflower, that particular code may have been used for two days. So it's not like you would see somebody continuously using a sunflower to convey information. Don't come on the waterfront. Don't try to board a ship. Codes were at the shelf life at the very most three or four days because someone could have told what they meant. Um, Abolitionists, could have not been a true abolitionist. Uh, People would pretend to help you and then turn you in for the money. So you had to be careful even with codes. But in that second room, we give you a strong sense of the ingenuity that people use to convey information, how it was used and um, how it benefited people. Wow. And those are the two main rooms. Those are the two main rooms. Now, we have another auxiliary site at the Washington Harbor District Market. And in that auxiliary site, we have things that are just too large to place in the main museum. Like we have an 1848 spinning wheel that the owners of Elmwood Plantation gave us. Hmm. So in that site, we talk about the agriculture cultural history of Washington, um, how it was enhanced by enslaved people. And in that location, you get to see how things worked. So with everything going on with COVID-19, how have you and the museum had to adapt? Well, it's like pulling bunny rabbits out of a hat, that's for sure. Um, In the past, we would have as many as 200 school children coming to uh, the museum. Now, how we handled that, we broke them up in groups. Uh, One group we would send to the um, estuarium here in Washington for specific activities. So they partner with us. Uh, We send groups to the waterfront looking for um, coded uh, messages that we had hid. We'd have a group of 10 maybe coming through the museum at one time. We'd have a foodways uh, presentation outside. And we would have um, living history presentations where my husband and I and some of our volunteers, we'd sing songs. Um, we dress up in clothing that had um, codes hidden in the clothing. So with um, us not being really to entertain um, groups, we're still going into schools, but with limited capacity. Uh, we have a school coming up in Moorhead City that we're visiting on uh, Thursday. Uh, They provide us the space that we need. So we take our artifacts over there. Uh, We're doing things by way of Zoom so that um, people from other places can kind of see what's going on in the museum, have a sense of what we do there. So instead of people coming to us and us doing um, so many tours over Eastern Carolina like we did last year, 
We're just kind of like reinventing stuff so that people still can get the experience. We don't want to just tell you facts when you come to the museum. We want you to have a living history experience. We want to show you how you can take how um, enslaved people took um, black walnut shells and made um, dye for their hair or how they darkened their skin. We want to show you how songs and dances work with the um, costumes that we have on. For example, um, if I'm a freedom seeker and I need a specific, um, I need a specific help that can be conveyed by the clothing that I have on. So we can do it by a Zoom call. Uh, we can do it by people um, kind of tuning in to some of the presentations we've done in the past. But we really like interfacing with people, having them join us, having to sing the songs with us, having to do the dances with us. So we're finding now, um, instead of having so many large groups come in, we're just doing smaller groups. Um, we're still going to visit the school, but not in the capacity that we have in the past. Uh, we're doing newspaper articles. Uh, again, our Facebook pages, um, we can share things on our Facebook page. But in terms of what COVID has uh, reduced us to, we're still trying to have people have an experience other than just tell you a whole bunch of facts. So we're still fine-tuning that as we speak. Is there anything, you know, you've had to adapt and implement? Is there anything, say, we get out of all this? Is there anything you think you'll be like, hey, that was a great idea. Let's continue doing that. Um, Zoom, I I had not been a big fan of Zoom, but we're, um, we're, we're recognizing we need to use all the technology that's available to us. So in the past where we didn't do a lot of Zoom um, activities because we felt like people can, can come to us and we can go to them, we're really fine-tuning the Zoom now. Mm-hmm. Um, Facebook Live, we're really trying to fine-tune those things so that we can still give people a sense of what we do. It's not the hand-on presence that we want them to have. Or, for example, um, we hide secret messages in eggs. And we have people mm-hmm. to come up and I'll tell them, listen, I want you to hit this edge as hard as you can. And people have this kind of resigned look on their face like, yeah, but if I do, I'm going to get egg yolk all over me. Not knowing that the um, the, the contents of the egg has been um, cleaned out through two holes that are placed in the egg. Uh, the egg is dried. And then, of course, the message is placed in the egg. You can see that on Zoom, but it's still kind of fun to uh, see people's expression when you just pull them out of the audience and, and ask them to do it. But Zoom has helped tremendously in getting the word out about what the Underground Railroad was, how it functioned, why it is even important today. So what we didn't use a year ago in terms of all the technology that's available, we're definitely having to use that now. And we'll probably go a couple of months from now, wow, that Zoom was a really great idea. (laughs) It seems to me uh, you might be looking forward to when, you know, we can look, get back to normally visiting museums again. Is there anything about, you know, when when you had your big school groups coming that you love and that you look forward to happening again? Absolutely. Um, We're trying to get maybe to the point where May 1st we can we can start actually having the 
the big boobs again because we have a huge, um, we're, in the, we're in the middle of a park. And so we can put uh, a lot of chairs out there, still socially distanced, and have um, school groups come in and still um, have a living history experience. What we look forward to again is the amazement, um, not only from the students, but from the adults as well. They'll go, oh, I never knew. How come nobody ever told me this? Um, I think they're blown away by the creativity of people using whatever they had to help themselves get free. They didn't sit back and just wait for somebody to come on the plantation and free them. Um, the steps that they took to help free themselves. So when we share about the clothing or I, I sing this song about strutting through the alley and explain that the Pamlico Tar River was the alley and, and how that song communicated uh, what day to travel, how to travel, what you need to do to have people come up and dance and sing with me. I really miss that. And I do look forward to that. I look forward to, um, people just totally having their minds blown by how enslaved people learn to read and write, not using um, alphabets at all, how they'd make a song and teach um, each other how to read and write. And just seeing the, the look of awe on people's faces. Uh, we've had people that broke down crying. They're just overwhelmed by what they're learning. We've had people that, um, walk away so encouraged. Wow, if they did that then, what more can we do today to promote harmony and uh, unity among people? I miss that. And that's what I look forward to, mm -hmm. for people to understand genuinely what the Underground Railroad was and how we can still use what they did uh, we teach children, you can be an abolitionist too. An abolitionist was simply someone who um, made life better for someone else. And we tell them how they can be an abolitionist, even in their own schoolrooms. So I look forward to that. It seems like those visits were sort of like a big event for the, the town too, like along the riverfront. Oh, absolutely. Um, people take pride in their river knowing that now uh, a river they look at every day was um, an avenue of freedom. I mean, it gives people a sense of pride in their town. Uh, people can talk about different things. Uh, people will say to me, um, well, you know, my, my great, 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 great grandfather owned a plantation down river. Um, can you help us learn about that? Um, we try to um, encourage people to look at the many facets of slavery. Um, we have people that come again and cry on our shoulders. You know, my great, great, great grandfather owned slaves and we try to educate them how that could have even gone. I mean, slavery has a hard and bitter history behind it, but it also has a history of humanity being its best at a time when humanity was at its worst. And people here in Washington, um, they've caught on to that. Um, and they, they come and they share their histories or they, they talk about uh, places on the waterfront where they had family members to own something. And the fact that um, their wharf may have been used as an avenue of freedom. So it gives our town a lot to talk about. It opens up um, dialogue. 
it opens up a level of understanding that maybe wasn't there before. You got to remember this is still a small town in the South. Um, so it helps people to open their eyes to a bigger part of history that maybe they had overlooked before. That's so interesting. And it's great that that you continue to do that today. You'd mentioned uh, writing a book for your grandkids. Did you end up publishing that book? Um, I published part one of it. It's called Bright Ma, Bright Ma, M-A, Day Clean, A Story About the Underground Railroad. And the first book is basically talking about this, this little girl. Um, she's she's um, 11 years old. The family is having a uh, family reunion that they haven't had since about 1890. And what they want to do with the main character of the story is impart all the history of how they came over from a land called Batoba, Africa, how they got here to Washington, North Carolina. So book one talks about that. Um, there'll be It's a series of books. Um, initially, I did it as an ebook so that my uh, virtual learners could have easy access to it. But that book um, talks about how enslaved people uh, actually came here through the Port of Bath and ended up in Washington, North Carolina at a free community called Keysville. So that, that book has been published. I'm still working on a couple of books, the African-American history of Washington, North Carolina. And again, that history goes back until about 17, I believe it's 55. And it talks about um, African-Americans right here in Washington. So I'm still kind of fine tuning that because I'm still kind of finding stuff. But the first book has for the children has been published. It's an easy read, but it has a lot of history, even for adults in it. Well, that's great. I have to check that out and maybe share it with my young daughter. So you, you've given us so much info about your museum and all the amazing things that you do. I'm just curious, when you're not in Washington, are there any of other parts of North Carolina that you like to explore? Absolutely. The mountains and the ocean. <laughs> Mount, Mount Mitchell is like my favorite. I mean, I've got oh, these yeah. pictures of me standing on Mount Mitchell. Yeah, I'm on top of mountain. Uh, Mount Mitchell. And again, anywhere on the coast. I think um, Cape Hatteras is, is probably my most favorite place in the world because of the lighthouse. I am, I am just so in love with that lighthouse. Mm. But um. The mountains and the coast, my favorite places to go. We really are blessed to live in North Carolina with having that option. Absolutely. Lisa Payton-Jones, thank you so much for taking time to chat with me. Uh, before I let you go, I just want to know, where can people learn more about the Underground Railroad Museum? Right now we have a Facebook page. We're working. We had to fine-tune the website for some things, so the website will be up soon. But right now, um, there's information on Facebook. And for people who don't do Facebook, um, if they would just email me, we can send them copious amounts of information. We do radio broadcasts. We've done uh, TV broadcasts. There's some things on um, North Carolina Weekend about us. So there's a lot of ways to learn about us, even if people don't do Facebook. If they will just... Um, Google Washington Waterfront Underground Railroad Museum. There's a lot of information that they can glean just from the sites that are available. But I appreciate the um, opportunity to share. And I guess my biggest takeaway, um, I would want people 
to keep in mind, again, is what the Underground Railroad was, people helping people, um, all kinds of people treating people with dignity, kindness, respect, compassion. And if we can somehow figure out how to do that today in light of um, everything that's going on, we're going to do very well. Those are the lessons that we need to learn um, from how the Underground Railroad worked. And if we did it before, we can certainly do it again. Thank you so much uh, for taking time to talk with me. And Again, thank you for listening to this episode of NC Travel Chat. My biggest takeaway was how Ms. Jones started with something small as a personal project that has now become a nationally recognized museum. If you're a person who's on the fence about doing something or you know, just starting a project, go beyond that planning stage, get it started, figure it out as you go along. You never know what you can uncover and accomplish. Also, have you visited the Underground Railroad Museum in Washington? What did you think of it? Please let me know by emailing me at carl at nctripping.com. I'd love to hear from you. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star review and some kind words, and don't forget to subscribe. While this is our last episode during Black History Month, we are not done sharing the stories of Black, Indigenous, and people of color in North Carolina throughout the year. Until the next episode, we hope you're able to get out there and see something awesome in North Carolina. Take care.